You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. I invite you to open your Bibles and turn to Psalm 107. We'll read the verses 1 through 3, the, the title, the introduction to the psalm, and that is broken up into various sections, and we'll read the section that goes from verse 23 through to verse 32. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say this, those He redeemed from the hand of the foe, those He gathered from the lands, from east and west, from north and south. And we turn to verse 23. Others went out on the sea in ships, They were merchants on the mighty waters. They saw the works of the Lord, his wonderful deeds in the deep. For he spoke and stirred up a tempest that lifted high the waves. They mounted up to the heavens and went down to the depths. In their peril, their courage melted away. They reeled and staggered like drunken men. They were at their wit's end. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. And he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad when it grew calm. And he guided them to their desired haven. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for men. Let them exalt him in the assembly of the people and praise him in the council of the elders. Thus far, our reading from Psalm 107 will now turn to John chapter 20 should mention that both of these readings are in connection with our text from John 6 regarding the time when the Lord Jesus walked on the water. The disciples saw him there and then he stilled the waters and brought him, brought them to shore safely. We read now John chapter 20, the verses 24 through 31. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it in my side, stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Our text this morning is John chapter 6, the verses 16 through 21. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. 
strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed three or three or three and a half miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were terrified. But he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were headed. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in C.S. Lewis's famous essay, The Inner Ring, The Inner Ring, he writes about the desire that so many people have to be an insider. To be an insider. He writes about how in, in so many contexts in life, we can think of at high school, at work, even in the family, at church, everywhere, there are circles of intimacy and of knowledge. So, so there, there's a group, right? And, and, and some people are in that group and some people aren't in that group. And in fact, there are groups upon groups. There, there's a group and then inside that group, there's another group, a smaller circle of intimacy and knowledge. And then inside that, there's a smaller circle of intimacy and knowledge. And some of these circles interact and overlap. Lewis writes about these, and he warns about making it your desire to enter into inner circles. That is, to to pursue always being in the know, always being one of the inner crowd. And he warns against that for several reasons. For one, he says, you, you, you never actually make it. As soon as you get into one circle that you thought you wanted to get into, you realize that inside that circle there's actually a smaller one. And you're not a part of that one. And so you're always left unfulfilled. And your desire to be in, you're never truly in. These rings, these circles in life, they exist. And as C.S. Lewis writes that essay, he doesn't have a problem with them existing. But what he warns against is the problem of desiring to be an insider. And letting that motivate your life. It's interesting that the Lord Jesus had an inner circle, didn't he? He had many disciples, but he had the twelve. And even within that circle, he had another circle, didn't he? He had the three, Peter, James, and John. So there were circles, and they do exist. And the twelve disciples, even though they they sometimes fought for position inside that circle, they wanted to be first among the disciples, they wanted to sit at, at Jesus' right hand in his kingdom. They didn't get into that circle by their own ambition, did they? How did they get into that circle? Jesus called them. He said, come and follow me. And his powerful and authoritative voice made them his disciples. Now, perhaps we think it would be a great thing to be in Jesus' inner circle, to be in his inner ring. Wouldn't that be amazing to have been able to sit at his feet and to learn from him, to walk with him? Sometimes we have that desire, perhaps, to get into our Lord Jesus' inner circle, and we're sad that that the realities of history are such that we can never get there. Our names are not written in the Bible. 
But of course, as soon as you start to think about this a little more, you you recognize that being in Jesus' inner circle is not always what you might think. It's not always such a, a great thing. Jesus was the one, remember, who told his disciples to count the cost. He said, consider what it will cost you to follow me and to be my disciple. It's going to cost you your life. He told his disciples, drop everything and follow me. And whoever loves father, mother, wife, children more than me is not worthy of me. Such is the cost of belonging to Jesus Christ. That's what it's like to be in the inner circle of with our Lord Jesus. His kingdom is an upside down one. Well, perhaps you think that it will be a road to glory. In fact, it's not. And, and in the Gospel of John, the road for these disciples, these twelve, is going to get more difficult as they go along. They are going to be challenged in their commitment to Jesus Christ. They're going to be challenged in their faith. They're going to be challenged by the persecutions that their rabbi will be facing. Persecution is going to grow greater. Plus, all the mistakes they make are going to be written down and recorded for posterity. Eventually, although it's not written in God's word, but from what we know, most of the disciples went to their death for Jesus Christ. They were persecuted and killed because they belonged to Jesus Christ. In our text this morning, we have our Lord Jesus performing another miracle and revealing even more about his divine power and majesty, his divine character. He had just before this uh, distributed the bread, five loaves, two fish to a crowd of 5,000 men plus women, children. He'd shown that just like God had fed his people in the wilderness, fed the manna, He too was able to feed his people. He too was God and cared for them. But why is Jesus showing his power to his disciples in this way? Well, it is because the road for them is going to get difficult. It's going to be challenging. So he's fortifying them. He's strengthening them by revealing his person to them. And now, brothers and sisters, this is what you have to get in order to understand really all of the Gospels and more all of God's Word. If you take a step back and you consider what's happening here and the fact that we're reading this, then you realize that those 12 disciples, the ones whom Jesus walked across the water to join in the boat, are not the only ones in his inner circle, are they? They're not the only ones to whom Jesus has revealed himself in power and majesty. Isn't it true that we are also in that inner circle? By reading these words and by believing them, we gain knowledge and understanding of the person of Jesus Christ. He's revealing himself not just to these disciples in their fear, but he's revealing himself to all of us. In our fear. 
The Holy Spirit, through God's Word, brings us right into this terrifying and yet intimate setting of the boat on the stormy sea of Galilee. And He does so so that we might understand more and more the power and the person of Jesus Christ. Just like Jesus said to Thomas in John chapter 20, You believe because you see, and therefore you believe. Blessed are those who don't see. But believe. Well, how will they believe if they don't see? Because it is written for them, John goes on to say in John 20. These, all these miracles have been written that you might know them, that you might believe them, and that you might have eternal life, be brought into the inner circle of redemption. Eternal life. Eternal security. Salvation. Be brought into the family and the people of God. So the Lord Jesus revealing himself to us. That we might be fortified for all the difficulties and the challenges that we face. As we walk the road of discipleship. So the Lord Jesus fortifies his inner circle. On the stormy sea of Galilee. That's our theme this morning. The Lord Jesus fortifies his inner circle on the stormy sea of Galilee. He comes to them in their distress. He calms their fears. And he brings them safely to their destination. For first responders. For those who deal with people in in crisis situations. For all of us, because those situations come up, you can't predict them, but they do come. The the first rule for caring for people in a crisis is this, be there. Be there. If you want to care for someone in their crisis, you have to be there with them and for them. Now, not every situation is a crisis situation, but when there is a crisis, those with the competence to help and the support know that they, that you can't do anything until you show up, until you're there. And again, stepping back, doesn't that shed some light on the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ? He showed up. That's the, the first chapter of John. The first chapter of this gospel. Jesus Christ is the word. He was with God. He is God. He came as light into the darkness. He showed up. For us. For this dark world. In our sin. To bring salvation. What we have in our text this morning. Is certainly a crisis situation. As the disciples try for a a through the night crossing of the Sea of Galilee. We read that that a wind picks up. And they've rowed about three miles. Three and a half miles out. And they find themselves, themselves in the middle of a big storm. The bigness of the storm is indicated by the, 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 the mention of the wind and the waters, the waves. But also about the fact that they had been rowing for so long, but had only gone as far as they had. I've not spent much time rowing, but that's what the explainers say. And so they're in trouble. They're in the middle of this storm on the Sea of Galilee, which was well known for its terrible storms. And what does Jesus do? 
he shows up. He's there for them. Now, it's worth mentioning that even before he showed up, he was there for his disciples. We read in verse 15 that he had withdrawn himself to a mountain. The other Gospels read that he had gone to pray. The Lord Jesus was always there for his disciples. Even when he withdrew from them, he was remembering them in his prayers. But when the storm kicks up, he is there. And this is where we remember, of course, that we are not Jesus. We can help people in their crisis situation, but but we cannot offer the same kind of help that the Lord Jesus can. And in fact, that's what he's revealing in this miracle, isn't it? That he is entirely different than anyone else. We can come alongside, we, but we share in the same weakness, in the same fears, in the same maladies. None of the other disciples could say to others, don't worry guys, I got this under control, because they didn't. But Jesus is different. He comes in power. He comes as the Son of God. True God and true man. In this miracle, he, he pulls away the curtain, you might say, of his divine majesty and reveals it to them. That's what's striking about this account. The, the power and the majesty that Jesus displays here. But notice that it, it's not, he's not revealing this majesty to everyone else, but no, he's doing it in the middle of a storm. No one else is aware of what's going on except for those disciples in the boat. He is revealing himself specifically to his inner circle. He wants them to be strengthened. He wants them to be fortified. He knows who are his. You could go to later in John. He knows who are his. and He goes to them and he strengthens strengthens them. Now, why do we say that he shows himself in such power and majesty here? Well, it's quite obvious because he's walking on water in the middle of a storm. This is obviously something that is miraculous. None of us can walk on water, something we cannot do. But even as miraculous as as just that act is, there's more going on here as well. Throughout the Bible there, and especially in the Old Testament, there is this theme of of water. And that water is menacing. It's, It's scary. It's terrifying. When you're in a boat out on the water, you are powerless against the forces of a storm, against the forces of the sea. Many a sailor has lost his life to the sea. The Israelites know that. Afraid of this water. No one can tame it except for God. That's what Psalm 29 expresses in verse 10. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord is enthroned as king forever. He's powerful over everything, even the power of the sea. Psalm 89, verse 9, we sang those words together. Uh, it says of God, you rule over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, you still them. Job 9, verse 8, God alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. In the other Gospels, as they record this account, they say that the disciples were, were afraid 
because they thought they saw a ghost walking on the water. But it wasn't a ghost that they saw walking on the water. It was God walking on the water. It was the Lord, Yahweh, God Almighty, coming to them in the storm. Jesus shows His power over creation. And there is only one person who has that kind of power. To that small circle of troubled disciples, Jesus gives a display of glory that is unimaginable, unthinkable. But those disciples are going to have to know Him, aren't they? They're going to have to know who He is as they face the challenges on the road ahead. They're going to have to believe in Him. Jesus will say later in, in John 14, Remain in Me in order to bear much fruit. In order to be useful disciples, they will need to continue to trust in Him. And as Jesus reveals His majesty to them, He gives them every reason to trust in Him. He can still the waves. He can walk on the water. He is Yahweh Almighty. If a man remains in me, and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Here Jesus gives his disciples every reason to remain in him. He has come from the Father. He is the Son of God. So he comes to them in their distress. He also calms their fears. It's not surprising that the disciples were afraid when they saw Jesus coming to them. There were a lot of good reasons for their fear. Of course, people don't walk on water. That's scary if you see that. Ghosts don't show up in the middle of storms. The storm itself was pretty frightening. And if if they understood the implications of what it meant that Jesus was walking to them on the water, then they would have wondered, what is Yahweh doing in the form of a man? The disciples would have understood and their, their fear reaction would have given evidence of the fact that, that they have no control. In this, in this sea, they're completely without control. They have no explanation for what their eyes are telling them is true. They have no sense of what's going on. If you're not in control of a situation which is dangerous, then you will be afraid. That's what gives rise to fear, isn't it? That there's a situation that, that's dangerous and you are not in control of that situation. Right? If, if you're in control, then you're not afraid. If, if you're walking along and you see a man-eating tiger in front of you and you're not afraid, it's probably because you're at the zoo and there is a big a big wall, a big fence between him and you. You're in control of the situation because that fence is there. Remove that fence, you're going to be afraid. The disciples were afraid. 
But then Jesus comes to them and says, it is I. Don't be afraid. The relationship between those two statements is quite obvious. In verse 20, don't be afraid because it is I. You don't need to be afraid because it's me. It is I. Now, those, that expression, it is I, is, is an expression that's common throughout the Gospel of John. The, the I am. That's essentially what Jesus says there. Don't be afraid, I am. And throughout the Gospel of John, from this point forward, Jesus is going to, to point to himself and to who he is. He's going to say, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the way, the truth and the life. I am the true vine. And he says at one point, simply before Abraham was, I am. I am from everlasting to everlasting. And he says the same thing here. Simply, I am. This recalls to our mind the God's self-revelation of himself to Moses at the burning bush when he had said, I am who I am. I am he. As well as several times in the the prophecies of Isaiah, God reveals himself in the same way. I am who I am. I am he. Now the question is, is that what Jesus is meaning to say here? Is he revealing himself in the same way that God revealed himself to Moses? The burning bush, as God revealed himself in the prophecies of Isaiah. But it's difficult to tell. It's difficult to tell because you could use those same words, I am, simply to say, it's me. It is me. One question to ask, of course, in order to understand would be, how would the disciples have have heard this? How would the disciples have, have heard the identification? Well, they would have heard it just as that, as an identification. That Jesus, by speaking, is saying, It is me. It's me. It's Jesus. It's not a ghost. It's me, Jesus, walking on the water. It would have identified him as Jesus. But, and many scholars have kind of said, well, Jesus is not revealing himself as divine here. But if you think about it, you notice that this doesn't really change a thing, does it? So here comes this man walking on the water, stilling the waves in the sea when he gets into the boat, the other gospels tell us. And he says, Don't be afraid, it's Jesus. Oh, okay, it's just Jesus. He's still walking on the water. He's still calming the sea. This power over the wind and the waves, this supernatural ability, it still points to the divine character of Jesus. If he's identifying himself, he's still showing that he is God Almighty. And plus... Jesus says this to the disciples, but John also writes this. As he said in chapter 20, he writes it for the sake of the readers. And as the readers, we can, we can put together the case a bit more comprehensively. We can see the full thrust of what Jesus is saying when he says, it is I, or I am. In Mark, it says the disciples were astounded because they didn't understand. But we, the readers, can put it all together. Jesus is God Almighty. Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is the Son of God. 
And Jesus is in control. Therefore, don't fear. Jesus is in control. Don't fear. It is I. Don't be afraid. Those words which calm the disciples will need to continue to be with them as they go on their journey, as they continue this road of discipleship which will get more difficult as it goes along. It is I. Don't be afraid. Know who I am. I'm in control. I am Jesus Christ. Don't be afraid. As Jesus comforts his disciples, how much more comforted and strengthened aren't we? This inner circle reading these words and believing them by faith. As we too see Jesus, the Son of God, true God, revealing His power, and as we hear Him speaking to us, it is I, don't be afraid. Those words are going to need to be with you as well in all the challenges that you face and everything the Lord brings on your path as He teaches you to be His disciple. It's not an easy path. He He says it won't be. An easy path. You will face opposition. You will face trouble in this world. But Jesus says, do not be afraid. I am God. I am the son of God. And I am in control. That's true for Roger and Karen. As as they made the promise. And every parent who has made that promise. To raise their children. In the fear and. An admonition of the Lord. It's not going to be easy, but God is with you. It's true for Devin. It's not going to be easy for him. All these wonderful promises come to him, but that obligation still stands before him. But God will be with him. That's the reality of the covenant. I will be your God. You will be my people. It's true for all of you in in the particular circumstances of your lives as the Lord leads you like a faithful shepherd by green in through green pastures and quiet waters and also through the valley of the shadow of death Jesus says it is I don't be afraid I am God almighty I am in control. Don't be afraid. So Jesus calms their fears. He calms the fears of those who are in his inner ring. It includes all of us who read these words and believe. And finally, he leads them to their destination. This is a a little appreciated conclusion to this account, but it's noteworthy. Notice in verse 21, then they were willing to take him in the boat and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. Immediately the boat was there. That's what we read. If we take it at face value, then Jesus has performed another miracle. It may be that that John is just speaking of a, a short 
time. It seemed like we were there immediately, but most likely he's saying one minute we were in the middle of the lake and the next minute we were safe at the shore. What would be the point of that miracle? Well, the point is that Jesus doesn't just calm their fears, but he also brings them to their destination. He's not just the faithful shepherd who's with you as you go through these various difficulties, but he's the one who brings you safely home. The words of Psalm 107 resonate here. They were glad when it grew calm, and he guided them to their desired haven. Like a good shepherd, Jesus brings his disciples to the shore. And through this whole account, then, we're reminded of Psalm 77, a psalm that's all about God's shepherding of his people through the wilderness. The wilderness, remember, where God fed his people with manna, just like Jesus had just fed his people with bread. But what else happened as God led out his people? He led them through the sea, didn't he? The the waters parted and he brought them to their destination, not just on the shore, onto the shores of the Red Sea, but onto the other side of the Jordan. More importantly and more significantly, he brought them to the promised land. He brought them to the promised land. Psalm 77 verses 19 through 20. Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. And now that faithful shepherd, the one who is with them in the wilderness, is among them. He is with them in their boat. And as he leads them to the shore of the lake, he brings them safely to their destination. Together with the Father, Jesus gives his people bread. Together with the Father, he leads his people to their destination. Here it's to the edge of the lake, but for the disciples, it's to a safe place. No longer the trouble, the power, the the uncontrol of the water, the fear, but to a place of rest. In the wider picture of the gospel, Jesus is leading his disciples to eternal comfort and joy. The comfort and joy of eternal life. As he comes to give his life in exchange for theirs, he reveals himself as the great God, not just so that they can know he is God, but so that he can go to his death in their place. He can take their sins upon himself. He can grant his righteousness to them. So save them, not just from the storms and the difficulties of life, those that happen in the middle of the Sea of Galilee or in Langley today, but so that he can save them eternally. Eternally. He will walk through the waters of judgment, the waters symbolized in baptism, in order to redeem us, his people, and secure our eternal inheritance. He can do that because he has come from heaven He has come into our flesh, but he is still at the same time true and eternal God. He is the perfect mediator. He is the perfect savior. Believe in him and live forever. Amen.
This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.